Well, you can take your Bibles and open to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week, we started by illustrating the, the importance of decisions in life. We encounter several decisions in life each and every day, each and every hour. Only once in a while, though, do we encounter decisions that truly change your life. Marriage, kids, career, so on. These decisions come like a fork in the road. And depending on how you choose, your, your life may never be the same. What happens, though, when you make the wrong decision? What happens when you go down the, the wrong road? Oftentimes, the result is disaster. Many people throughout history have made decisions ending in disaster, leaving behind for us a story to tell, a lesson to learn. The illustration that always pops in my mind is Napoleon. And by 1812, Napoleon had conquered much of Europe. He was essentially undefeated in his military conquests. He, he had the largest army the world had ever known at the time and didn't have much else to do, so he looked east to Russia, decided to invade Russia. That was a bad decision. One of the worst in all of military history. The Russians didn't fight. They just retreated eastward. They burnt crops and supplies behind them as they left. And by the time Napoleon reached Moscow, there was nothing left. It was just a burning heap of ruins. The invasion seemed pointless, so the French decided to return home. But by that time, winter had set in. As supply lines were cut and temperatures dropped, his large army didn't stand a chance. Thousands of men died from hunger and from freezing cold, scores more than from any fighting. Napoleon's decision to invade Russia near wintertime proved deadly. 750,000 men started the invasion. Only 250,000 returned home. It was a costly decision. France never regained its power. Lesson learned, don't invade Russia in the winter. The military world has seen key decisions ending in disaster. So has the business world. Back in 1999, a company named Excite, you ever heard of it? A company named Excite was doing pretty well. It was a, a startup. It was a internet portal search engine during the dot-com boom of the 90s. They were doing well. The founders of Google attempted to, to sell their search engine, Google, to Excite for, for just a million dollars. They even reduced their price to $750,000. But the Excite CEO said no, didn't want it. This is a bad decision. Today, Google is valued at just $180 billion. Excite no longer exists. This is another bad decision. I'll give you another colossal one, a colossal decision ending in disaster. You ever heard of Western Union? You probably have. They used to be, though, the biggest communications company in America. They had a monopoly on the telegraph. But then came this new technology called the telephone. And back in 1876, Western Union had the opportunity to buy the patent for the telephone for only $100,000. But they turned it down, replying to the seller, quote, after careful consideration of your invention, while, while it's very interesting novelty, we've come to the conclusion that has no commercial possibilities. What use could this company make of an electrical Toy, end quote. So Alexander Graham Bell, who owned the patent for the telephone, decided to keep it and start his own company, which was later renamed American Telephone and Telegraph, or AT&T, which had become and overtook Western Union as the largest communications company in America. 
Again, another, from a business angle, that was a poor decision, a decision that really ended in disaster for Western Union. There's one more. Back in 1981, Universal Studios, they called up the Mars Corporation, asking to use the candy M&Ms in one of their upcoming films. Mars Company said no, though this was, in hindsight, a bad decision. Why? The film ended up being E.T., which was one of the top-grossing films ever, and the candy was needed for, you know, that special scene where the boy tries to lure the alien into his house using candy, E.T. Universal Studios ended up using this, this new product, this new candy no one ever heard of at the time. Sales weren't really going so well. The candy was Reese's Pieces. Of course, after the movie, Reese's got immediate product recognition. Their scale skyrocketed, and they never turned back. These are just a few examples of just big decisions in life that can go either way. And if you get it wrong, the result is often disaster. And like I said, sometimes life comes with those decisions that if you get them wrong, they're, they're consequences. Sometimes bad decisions cost you your reputation. Sometimes bad decisions cost you sleep at night. Sometimes bad decisions cost you your business. Sometimes bad decisions even cost you your life. And sometimes, or really just one time, there, there's, there's a decision that if you get wrong, it's even more costly than these. There's one decision that every person must make, where if you get it wrong, it doesn't cost you your life. It costs you your eternal life. And this, of course, is, is a decision about Christ. Like we said last week, like we asked last week, what will you do with Christ? What will you do with Jesus? What you do with Jesus Christ is the most important decision of your life. Your life and your eternal life hang in the balance. Last week we started into 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 8. And here on Sunday mornings we're going verse by verse through the, the letter of 1 Peter. And, and today we encounter a passage where Peter highlights these two responses people can make to Christ. And they're two results. He develops this contrast between belief and disbelief, acceptance and rejection, and how you respond to Christ. What decision you make in regards to him is, humanly speaking, the most important decision you will ever make. So turning into 1 Peter 2, let's go ahead and read our passage. If you haven't turned there already, turn there. Let's read our passage and, and get reacquainted with the text we started last week. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. He writes, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. 
and to this doom they were also appointed. We started to unpack and understand this passage last week, aiming to observe the, the two responses to Jesus and their results. The two responses to Jesus and that and their results. That's where we're going with this. Last time, we only had t- time to look at the first response people can make to Christ, which is belief and worship. Belief and worship. It's the first response. It's the right response, the right decision regarding Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son in human flesh, who lived, who died, who rose again, who still lives. He's the Savior of the world. He offers forgiveness of sins, even eternal life, if you would just receive him and respond to him. How? In belief and worship. Believe upon him as the Savior and the Son, and and then worship him as such. Verse 6, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. If this is your response to Christ, if you have placed your faith in him and rightly responded to the gospel, then God grants you forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, redemption, eternal life. And Peter, in addition to this, in our passage, he highlights five other responses that come when you rightly respond to Christ. And what are these? Just as recap from last time. These five right responses, or five responses to, uh, um, five results to rightly responding to Jesus. Number one, from verse five, he says, you're a living stone. You are a living stone. First and foremost, Christ is the living stone. Peter references several Old Testament prophecies that look forward to the Messiah as God's choice and precious stone. And here we we know Christ is that stone. He's the cornerstone. He is the living stone. But he's not the only one. You see, when you come to him in faith, God makes you a living stone. He he gives you new life, new spiritual life that, that Christ gives to those who come to him. This is the first result. You, you come to life. You have new spiritual life, eternal life, when you rightly respond to Christ. The first result, you're a living stone. But these living stones, when God makes them, they're not meant to be scattered about. They're meant to, to come together. And this leads to the second result that we observed last week. Number two from verse five, you're a spiritual house. You are a spiritual house. God intends for his people who he has saved and he is made into living stones to be built together. Building stones are they're not meant to be scattered and separated. They're meant to be built together. And so are the people of God. So are God's living stones, members of the church. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian detached from the people of God. Number three, also from verse five, you are a holy priesthood. Not only does God form his people into a spiritual house, he also forms them into a holy priesthood. Christ came as the perfect high priest, fulfilling the need for a special group of men to act as priests. And now, what does God do? God makes every believer who comes to Christ a priest in his kingdom. Every single one has that special access to God. You you don't need a priest anymore. You are the priest. Every single believer becomes a priest before him. This is the priesthood of all believers. This is the third result of coming to him. And then finally, from verses 6 and 7, Number four, you are not disappointed. And number five, you are honored. 
These are the, the final two results we saw last week, which come to you as you come to Christ. You are not disappointed in him. Jesus will never fail you. He will never let you down. And to the contrary, you, you receive honor. You receive his honor as he gives it to you. So this, as we saw, this is the first response to Jesus, belief and worship, and these are the results that flow out of it. Today, though, we want to change gears. We want to look at the second response mentioned in this passage. The second response men can and do make to Christ and the results that flow from it. So, so what is it? What is this second response? It is unbelief and rejection. Second response, unbelief and rejection. Not everyone believes in Jesus. Not everyone looks at him as the Christ. Some people reject. Think of verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, This precious value then is for you who believe. For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Here the wrong response to Christ is brought into focus, which is unbelief, disbelief, rejection. The word in verse 7 for disbelieve, it's the exact negative of the word for believe, the exact opposite. To disbelieve like this involves a refusal to put one's trust or reliance in someone or something. More than just not believing the facts about Jesus, these people, they were not willing to trust in him and to rely upon him as their savior. You have to understand, Jesus was a very divisive figure in his day. Like an iron plow that just cuts through the earth. Jesus just separated people. As he passed through the crowds, he just separated them. He was like a magnet, just a polarizing figure. You either loved him or hated him. You were either attracted to him or repelled by him. Why is that? It's because he made these claims, these these radical claims that you just have to deal with them. You, you either have to accept them or reject them. There's really no middle ground. You can claim to just be riding the fence, or you can say, I just haven't made up my mind yet. But that's the same thing as rejection. You either accept or everything else is reject. That's how bold, that's how serious Christ's claims are. And his claims are still made today. Jesus still speaks in scripture to the entire world, claiming to be someone special, someone important, someone you need to reckon with, you need to deal with, you need to respond to. So what are these claims? Well, turn with me to John chapter 6. I want to take a, just a moment here to show you these claims that Jesus makes. John chapter 6. I want to take you on just a quick tour and just give you a sample of some of the bold claims that Christ makes to show you what we're talking about here. So we'll start off in John chapter 6. Seven times in the Gospel of John, John records these I am statements. These statements where Jesus says, I am this, I am that. He makes these monumental claims about his person and his work and just looking at these seven claims will give you a good idea of, of what we're talking about here. We're just going to go through these one by one. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The fourth one, John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14. Again, he says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. My own know me. Number five, John 11. John 11, verse 25. The fifth I am statement, John 11, 25. He, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John chapter 14, verse 6. You may know this one. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And lastly, the seventh I am statement, John 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Just a sampling of the claims that Christ made. And just a side note, by the way, I've heard people say or criticize preachers who use a lot of illustrations. But look at how Christ preaches. He illustrates everything. He compares himself to bread and light and doors and shepherds and sheep and vine and branches. But the point we're making here is, is look at these claims that he's making behind the illustrations. These bold claims and consider them. If you put them all together, you find that he calls himself both God and man, son and savior, and the one through whom men must go to for eternal life. So so how are you going to respond to these claims? That's what we're talking about here. There's two possible responses, belief or unbelief, acceptance or rejection. And that's the contrast Peter's developing in in 1 Peter. You can turn back to 1 Peter 2, by the way. And amazingly, to me at least, many people, if not most people, choose the response of rejection, of unbelief. And if you ever wonder, how can people choose to to not believe in Jesus? It it sounds good. You just have to remember, in his own day, people didn't even believe in him. In his own day, he was rejected. In his own day, he wasn't even welcome in his hometown. And you'd think Jesus would receive a hero's welcome. You'd think he'd be treated as, you know, the small town, hometown hero for going around and doing all these miracles and healing people. I mean, today, a soldier of war comes home, goes back to a small town. He gets a hero's welcome. The whole town lines up. They throw him a parade. 
You'd think Jesus would receive the same treatment, but, but no. Even though Christ was doing these miracles and healing people, when he shows up in Nazareth, they run him out of town. They say to themselves, who does this guy think he is? We know Jesus. He's that carpenter's son. He's not special. Why should we think he's special? They run him out of town. This is unbelief. And many today have that same reaction to Jesus. I've heard people say, if only I could do miracles, then people would believe. If only I could perform healings, then people would believe. If only I could raise someone from the dead, then people would believe. Christ did all those things and more. And people still didn't believe because their hearts were hardened. Luke 16.31, Jesus said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see, Christ was Moses and the prophets. He was the word of God incarnate. People still rejected him. How could they do that? How could they not believe? It's because we're not just dealing with unbelief here. That's part of it, but, but their unbelief went deeper than that, more fundamental to something called rejection. And that's the second part of this wrong response. It's unbelief, but it was more than that. It was a rejection. Verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2 you know, says, Coming to him as to a living stone, which, which what? has been rejected by men. When, when Christ first came, he, he was rejected. First by the Jewish leaders. But in our verse, Peter, he opens that up. He broadens that because he understands that in the years since, Christ is not just rejected by the Jewish leaders anymore. He's rejected by everybody. Men and women, young and old, all sorts of people reject Christ. And to reject here means to declare useless, to think of as unworthy, to just throw out. In the ancient world, even through the modern world, people contracting the disease leprosy were in the same way rejected by society. They're just rejected. If you started showing the symptoms of leprosy, you were deemed unfit to be in society. You were rejected. It's not that these people were tolerated or even ignored, they were actively and proactively just just rejected, just tossed out, separated from society. They were sent to leper colonies to live out their days as essentially worthless, rejected people. And did you know this? America had its last leper colony up until the 1990s. But Christ, though he was one who healed such diseases, he was likewise rejected but even more so. It went further. It was not just that the religious leaders and the people did not believe what he was saying. They rejected what he was saying. They rejected him. They wanted to kill him. I don't know about you. If I hear some editorial on TV that I don't agree with, I may not believe what they're saying. I may reject what they're saying, but it doesn't mean I'm going to kill the person. Yet Jesus was rejected to the point of death. And I guarantee you that if Christ came back today, if he came during this era, he would still be killed. He would still be martyred. That's how the lost respond to God's truth. More than just not believing it, they they reject it. They hate it. This is the second response to Jesus. Unbelief and rejection. And do do you know people who have chosen this response? Sure you do. Or maybe you've come here today, you've chosen this response. 
You find his claims not compelling. You see his demands as unreasonable. You don't like the idea of giving up yourself and your sin and your pride to follow him. And whatever the case, you have to understand that with rejection comes results, comes consequences. Just as there are results for believing in Jesus, so are there results for rejecting Jesus. Just as there are positive consequences for accepting him, so there are negative consequences for rejecting him. And last week we learned of these five positive results that come when you embrace him in belief and worship. Today, now, I want to turn our attention to three negative results that come when you wrongly respond to him. Three negative results that Peter mentions here that come when you wrongly respond to Jesus. Like we said at the beginning, it's simple. Christ, two results, or rather two responses you can make to him, belief or disbelief. What happens when you do not believe? Well, number one, you are shamed. You are shamed. Look at verse 7, back in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, This precious value, then, it's for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Stop there. Here in verse 7, Peter's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone and again, the emphasis is on this total turnaround. And here are these builders rejecting this stone, only for the stone to then go on and become the building's cornerstone. They evaluated the stone as worthless, and they rejected it. But the stone was actually the most important one of them all. They got it completely wrong. Now, what a turnaround. On December 13, 1961, Mike Smith of, of Deco Records, he found this new rock and roll band. He discovered them. He gave them an audition for the record label. And the band auditioned. They waited for weeks for their response. Finally, they got a response. They were turned down. The record label said, we don't really like you. They thought their sound was too much like another band. And the band manager was told by the label, quote, we don't like your boy's sound. Groups are out. Four-piece groups with guitars particularly are finished. End quote. And the band, of course, was the Beatles. They went on to sign with EMI Records, became the most popular band of all time. In fact, the Beatles alone started the trend back to that four-piece guitar band. And the point is, uh, what a turnaround illustration. What a complete turnaround. Here they were rejected as not being good enough. They went on to become, really, some would say the best ever. And see, Jesus also fits this description, but only more so. He is the stone in verse 7, prophesied in Psalm 118, that was rejected. Rejected by men, but God had other plans. Christ was also to be that cornerstone. The very thing these builders who picture unbelievers rejected as being powerful to save went on to become the actual foundation of salvation. They could not have gotten it any more wrong. That's the point. You know, again, we come back to this stone imagery, which we talked about last week. God communicates his truth in a very understandable way. Back then, many buildings were made of stone, but not just any stones, though. These were cut and prepared stones, you know, squared out. 
They had to be carefully and, and painfully cut with hammers, chisels, even saws. And once enough stones were made for construction, then transported to the site, they were inspected. The builders would evaluate the stones. Any stone not fit for building, anything that was not perfectly squared would be rejected. Sometimes literally just tossed to the side of the road. It was rejected for building. And that's the picture we're, we're working with here. And Christ is like one of these stones. See, men evaluated him. They, they considered his claims. They examined his works. Yet in their eyes, he, he didn't line up. He didn't measure up to, to their sinful beliefs and practices. So, so what did they do? They rejected him. They, they kicked him to the curb. But then God took Jesus, this rejected stone by the side of the road, and he placed him into his own building that God was building as the chief cornerstone. really the foundation stone for the entire building. And that's our picture. Jesus became the the first and most important stone in God's house. And he was and is the only one through whom others can have eternal life and become a part of God's house. Like I said, what a complete turnaround. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. So what does this mean for the builders, though? You know, you know those guys who rejected that stone, made the wrong decision? What about them? What comes of them? Well, the answer first is shame. The rejection of the stone, it's only to their shame. This is the first result of wrongly responding to Jesus in unbelief and rejection. You receive only shame. See, people, both in, both in the past and the present, They reject Jesus as Savior. If you do that, though, what are you looking to instead? What are you looking to to save you if not Jesus? What are you appealing to? What are you putting your hope and confidence in if it's not Jesus? The answer for people is themselves. They put their confidence in themselves, in their own works, their own goodness, their own deeds to be right before God. Like the ruling Jews, people today still reject Christ, saying, I don't need Jesus to save me. I, I can save myself. I'm good enough on my own. God's not going to condemn me. I can save myself. Jesus is not their cornerstone. They are their own cornerstone. Yet for all such people, what happens? Their works fail them. What they trust in, what they replace Christ with, fails them. It will not save, it will not satisfy. And instead, they will meet Jesus on Judgment Day, on the one they rejected, standing there in glory, and then they will know a new level of shame. A shame of rejecting the one, the only one who can save, and there's nothing they can do about it. Isaiah 42:17 speaks of unbelievers, says, They will be turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in idols. We say to molten images, you are our gods. They rejected Christ to save. They rejected God. They trusted in something else as an idol. Put to shame. Or consider this text, Matthew chapter 7. If you're quick, you can turn there. I'm just going to read this, Matthew chapter 7. It's a familiar passage. We read it often enough, but rightly so, Because it's a needed warning. 
And we need this reminder, this warning that comes to all. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus is speaking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What's going on here? These were people who they thought they were Christians, they thought they were saved, but they're being rejected on Judgment Day. Why? What are they appealing to on that day to save them? What, what are they pointing to to justify their right standing before God? They're pointing to themselves, to, to their own works, their own religion, prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles. You know, none of these are spiritual fruit. Not a single one of those is commanded by God. It's not fruit. These were simply religious people, and they were doing religion. They had religion, but they didn't have relationship with Christ. They rejected the cornerstone. And so what happens? He says to them, I never knew you. Never knew you. They had no saving faith relationship with the cornerstone. So what did they receive? Well, for one, shame. This is the first result of those who reject Christ. You are shamed when what you trust in fails you, while Christ, whom you rejected, stands true. Second result, you are stumbled. Secondly now, second result for wrongly responding to Christ, you are stumbled. Looking at verse 7 of 1 Peter 2, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Here Peter introduces the last of these three stone prophecies from the Old Testament which look forward to Christ as God's chosen stone. This time Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Peter identifies Christ the cornerstone, with this stone of stumbling and rock of offense. And the point of this reference then is is to show you that if you reject Christ, your rejection will be your own undoing. Your rejection of Christ will be the cause of your own rejection. There are two phrases in this reference. They're both saying pretty much the same thing in verse 8. The first is a stone of stumbling. A stone of stumbling, or a stone that causes people to stumble. Remember that building analogy we went over? You know, picture, you have these ancient builders inspecting these stones for building. And they find this stone, it's unworthy. They deem it unworthy, unfit for their purposes, so they discard it by the side of the road. But when they leave for the day to return home, What happens? They, they trip, they stumble over the very stone that they just rejected. And that's the picture. The point is that Christ, whom they rejected, will be the cause of their own stumbling, their own downfall, their own falling. The second phrase here means much of the same, a rock of offense, or a rock that makes people fall. 
And the picture now shifts from a, a smooth building stone to a rough and a rugged rock. And just picture the Morro Bay Rock, since we're here in the Central Coast. Just this massive boulder. And he calls it a rock of offense. That's kind of a strange phrase, though. What does that mean, a rock of offense? Well, the word for offense means it's a trap, a stumbling block. So basically, this is a rock that takes you down. It's a rock that traps you. It's a rock that stumbles you. You know, Imagine you're a vandal and you want to climb the Morro Bay rock and, and put a stick of dynamite in it and just blow it up. So you climb the rock, you get to the top, but it's just too difficult and you trip. You fall all the way back down. This is a rock of offense. You, you tried to destroy it, but in the end, it destroyed you. It's the cause of your own destruction. Again, this, this is a metaphor he's painting of, of saying that if people reject Christ, their rejection will be their own undoing. The one that they discard will in turn cause them to stumble and fall and they won't be able to get up again. And Peter adds in the middle of verse 8, they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. You have to remember that for Peter, not obeying the word and not believing the word are one and the same. Remember back in chapter 1 verse 2 when we just started? God has chosen you for what? To believe Jesus? No, that's true, but that's not what he says. God has chosen you to obey Jesus. point is this. You can say you believe in Jesus all you want. In fact, tons of people do. And what is the bogus statistic? 80% of Americans call themselves Christians or consider themselves Christians. Yeah, right, right? And you can say whatever you want, but if you refuse to obey Jesus as Lord... Your belief is a sham. That's the point. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So these people stumble. Why? Because they were disobedient to the word. This is the second result listed here of rejecting Christ. Lastly, Let's finish it up with number three. The third result, you are sentenced. You are sentenced. This comes from the last phrase in verse 8, where he says, And to this doom they were also appointed. You may be wondering what that means. I want to help you understand this. The NASB reads, And to this doom they were also appointed. But if you're using the NASB translation, if you look there, see the word doom, it's in italics. Now, what does that mean? When you see a word in italics, it means the word was not actually in the original Greek. The translators added it because they thought it helped translate the sense of, of the verse. But the verse literally reads, and to this they were also appointed. So we really have to ask, what is the, the this referring back to? Now, verse 8 says, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were appointed. So, so what's the this referring back to? Well, the answer is to the stumbling. See, God has appointed or destined that if any person rejects Christ, if any person is disobedient to the word, verse 8 says, they stumble. God has destined that disbelief leads to stumbling. Now, this verse does not have their final con condemnation in view, as, as some might think. 
It's because all the, all the verbs here, they're in the present tense. So we're talking about their present rebellion, not their final condemnation. The door is left open for them to repent and believe because Peter's writing from man's perspective, not God's. I think MacArthur's comments here are instructive and helpful as he has a way of making things clear. He writes that these people here in verse 8, these unbelievers were, quote, not appointed by God to disobedience and unbelief. Rather, these were appointed to doom because of unbelievant, um, disobedience and unbelief. Judgment on unbelief is as divinely appointed as salvation by faith, end quote. And what he's saying is, you know, Peter, he's writing from man's perspective. He's basically saying that if you reject Christ and if you're disobedient to the word, then God has appointed that you stumble. Stumbling, of course, refers to a person's demise. But the door is left open. You know, will these people reject until they die? We don't know. It's writing from man's perspective. Peter himself expresses hope that unbelievers will turn and embrace Christ. But this is the way scripture speaks. And when people are condemned, is it God's fault for not choosing them? No. It's always their fault for not believing, for rejecting. The point is God holds all people responsible for choosing Christ. Yes, God is entirely sovereign over salvation, but he still holds us accountable. And therefore, if you reject until the day you die, your condemnation is certain. He's appointed a certain judgment. God has provided a way of escape, and he offers that way to everyone. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He wasn't lying. That's a true statement. If anyone eats of the bread, he will live forever. It's there. It's, it's there for everybody. But God holds you accountable to how you respond to this living bread. And so verse 8 says that if you reject it, if you reject the living bread, it's been appointed for you to stumble, for you to fall. And this is everything we've been talking about the past two Sundays. How will you respond to Christ? It, it really does matter. It matters. We are only one of a, a handful of churches that still believe in a, in a big, sovereign, almighty God with election. But we still affirm, as Scripture does, your responsibility to believe in Christ. So we can come full circle back to the question, what will you do with Christ? The living bread, the living stone, how are you going to respond to him? It does matter. And if you reject, then the third result, you're, you're sentenced. It's been appointed. Judgment does await those who reject Christ. And if you die in your, in your rejection, your judgment becomes certain and unalterable. It's a sobering reality, but, but God has set up hell as the just place of punishment for those who have sinned before a holy God and not accepted God's offer of forgiveness through Christ. Those who reject him will meet him on that day, shamed, stumbled, and sentenced. And Jesus will say to them, Matthew 25, verse 41, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
So that's it from First Peter one two, or rather from First Peter two, four through eight. We've seen these two ways, these two responses to Christ. Either you listen, obey, trust, and believe in Him, receiving as a result eternal life, or you reject, disbelieve, turn away, receiving as a result the shame and the judgment. Jesus is either your source of life or your source of death, but you have to decide, and it it does matter. God is sovereign over salvation, but your decision does matter. And I want to close by reading and reminding you of a parable told by Jesus. If you like, you can turn to Luke 20, or you can listen along. You know, what we've covered this Sunday and last Sunday, it's not earth-shattering, it's not something new to you, I know that, it's not a rocket science for you to understand this, but it's one of those foundational and fundamental truths that Peter thinks is so important to include several verses on it. And though it may not be new to you, it's one of those truths that you need to have just down and understood and rightly uh, apprehended. All of you here at the very least have been presented with the Son, so how will you treat him? How will you regard him? How will you respond to him? It's time for you to decide, so I urge you to accept the Son. And listen to this parable, Luke 20, verse 9. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went away on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they, they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my own beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of this vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone, which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And don't let that be you. Consider Christ, look to him, choose him, and live. Father God, we bow before you now, lifting up our time in prayer to you. We thank you for a simple word you have given to us in 1 Peter, but nonetheless vital and important and life-changing. Everyone here has been confronted with Christ, who he is, what he has done. And everyone here must decide at one point or another. I pray that all may accept he is good, he is worth it, he saves, he forgives. He's a a satisfying Savior. I pray for those who who may reject that they would turn. It's not too late. They can choose otherwise. Nothing else can save, not 
yourself, not your own works, not your own goodness. We need the perfect spotless lamb to atone for us. May they turn to him. May they do so today, for they may not receive another day to do so, to choose Christ. Today may be their last day possible. So I pray for them, Lord. We lift up this time to you. We thank you for the simple reassurance in Christ, and that if we have chosen him, you you grant us salvation and assurance, a salvation that cannot be taken away and a joy that is ours. So we, we take comfort in that and encouragement. May we choose Christ every day. May we turn to him every day. May our faith grow stronger every day. In your name we pray. Amen.